0: Good morning. Well, Spencer said that you could ask questions about your name uh, because it's September. I say you can ask that question every Sunday because that's what I do because I can't remember all your names. So we all need grace all year long. So please keep doing that. My name is Bruce Enns and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor of uh, Forest Grove Community Church. I also uh, do a fair bit of the preaching here at Atridge. And so it's a real privilege to be with you again this morning. We're in uh, this series uh, called Follow Me, which is about discipleship. And if you are here last week, you will know that we started this series by asking, uh, we talked about great questions, and we started the series asking a question that Jesus asked his disciples, which is so important and foundational to who it is that we follow. And it was a question that Jesus posed to his disciples after they had a conversation about, you know, he was asking, who do people say that I am, and who you know, what's the word out there on the street about me? And then he turned the question onto them very personally and specifically and said, so what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that question, I think, is really, really important for us and it's foundational for us in discipleship and in following Jesus to be able to answer that question ourselves and say, who do we say that Jesus is? And it's a really critical question. This morning, we want to also ask a really good question, but it's a question that I think is a really challenging question. And as we step into this discipleship step of community, of of what it means to create healthy discipleship community, it's a question that I think uh, is in some ways a dangerous question. I had even people after the first service say, oh, I don't like that question. Um, And you may be challenged by this question because of the vulnerability that it brings out in you, maybe some of the insecurities that it brings out in you. But it's also a question that I think will grow you. It is a question that will humble us. And it's a question that will help us actually create community in the church much greater. The question is this, what's it like to be on the other side of me? You know, every one of us, whether we realize it or not, we leave awake behind us. We leave sort of Uh, A ripple effect of kind of interaction with people. So whether we're in a meeting with somebody one-on-one, whether we're in a group, community, small group, team, whatever, family, every single one of us leaves some kind of wake that impacts other people, whether you recognize it or not. And so the question for us today, and as we think about this idea of community that I want us to focus on, is actually a question about ourselves and who we are in community, and to simply ask, what is it like to be on the other side of me? And you can ask that question lots of different ways. Uh, You might simply ask, you know, um, what is something that I could do differently that would be the most helpful in our family or in our team or in our workplace? You might ask the question, um, what do you see as my gifts, maybe my spiritual gifts, and what's the shadow side to my gifts? Or you might ask the question, in conflict how could I respond differently that would be more helpful? Or you might just simply say, what is it that I need to do more often? Or what is it that I need to do less of? I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that you can ask the question, but essentially it's, it's putting the mirror up and allowing other people to speak into your life and just simply saying, what is it like to be on the other side of me? And so that's the question that I want to challenge us with today as we think about community And just the different ways that we can frame that question. Because oftentimes, you see, it's a lot easier to look at community um, as a whole or to look at others in community and to kind of see the flaws and the imperfections or the weaknesses or the unmet expectations in other people. That's quite easy to do. But what's harder to do is actually to hold up the mirror and ask that question of ourselves. about what is it that we bring into community if we were to take a really honest look at ourselves and who we are? We're going to look at a number of scripture today, and I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 12 to start. And uh, for some of you, this is a well-known text. For others, it, it would be new. So the book of Romans was written by Paul to the church there. And in chapter 12, he's talking about the body of Christ, the church family. He's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about what it is that we bring into community. And he begins the chapter by talking about coming as a living sacrifice. In other words, putting ourselves on the altar And also being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then it changes how we come into community. And he also says, before he gets into the spiritual gifts, he says, you need to take a really honest look at yourself and take an honest evaluation of who you are. In other words, hold up the mirror. So let me just read Romans 12, verses 1 to 6. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. For just as each one of us is a one of us, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So let me back up for just a minute and test the assumption that I'm making that community actually matters. I mean, Paul speaks about community here. But you may be somebody who might even question, you know, the high value that we're placing on community. And even as we've been thinking through and working through what we call these discipleship steps as a staff and as a church, you know, we've tried to give these tangible handles of some of these things that we can do practically and ways to think about things that help us to be a disciple and also disciple others. And one of the four is just this idea of community and creating community in one way or another. But you might be a hardcore introvert who kind of questions that community need and goes, yeah, I don't know if I need that so much. You know, just even in your faith, it's just like God and me and we're good and uh, don't really need community. But I would contend, and I think it's pretty easy to see as you look at Scripture, that God doesn't give us that option. Jesus talks about the bride of Christ. God, even in his character, there is community found in the Trinity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul talks about the body, about the body of Christ, even in that text that we just read in Romans 12, about the many parts and so on, that we all bring our personalities, our gifts, our resources, our experience, and that the body matters. We know that the church is not a building. The church is the body. It's the body of believers. The church is not this building that we're sitting in. The church is you as the body of believers. If this building burnt down this week, we would still meet as a church next week because we would meet as a body somewhere. So the building does not define us as the church. It's the body of members, the body of people, the body parts that are the church. And so this bride of Christ that Jesus sets in motion is a remarkable entity with all of its weaknesses, with all of its flaws, with all of its failures, But we can't argue against the need for community because it's so thoroughly throughout all of Scripture. You see, from the very beginning of the Old Testament, even in Genesis, where God set in motion the people of Israel through Abraham and he said he called them out and he set them apart as a people, that you are the community of God to proclaim the goodness of God and the hope of God through all the nations and all the peoples of the earth. And now as it says in Romans, we as the church are grafted into that call and we are part of this covenant community of taking this goodness of God to the nations of the earth. So the the church is this community of people to receive God's blessing and to proclaim and live out of the hope and promise of the gospel. And so we do that not alone, we do that in community. And so I would contend that community is not an option for us. And so the question for us is, what kind of community are we creating Remember uh, Trevor Goddard said, I think it was last year, where he talked about the fact that we don't drift into community. We do discipleship through community and we do discipleship in community. But the reality is, is that we are all doing different things through our words, our actions, our attitudes, our postures that either create and build up community or it does something that sort of undermines or pulls away from community. And so we need to think about community and what we're doing and how we're creating that really intentionally. So this week, as I was reflecting on this message and, and thinking about this topic specifically, I kind of just stopped and, and just kind of backed up a bit and thought, okay, what are, what are the essential critical elements about creating community? As I think about Scripture, as I think about my own life experience, what are, what are the core components or elements of creating community? And uh, I came up with five I'm going to walk through. You might add some more, and that's great. But let me just walk you through the five that, that stood out for me. So the first critical element is just commonalities. That one is, seems kind of obvious, but you need to state it. It's important. Commonalities is just simply what is it that is common? Community means that you have a common unity in something. That's where the word comes from. So what is the commonality that you gather around? And just to think about it and actually to be attentional about what causes you to gather together. And so I did a bit of a Google search, had some fun with that. Thought what other kind of communities are are gathered around odd things? So one university has a lettuce eating club. That's what they do. And they apparently have races to who can eat a head of lettuce the quickest. I mean, that's weird, but that's what they gather around. Uh, There's the ant watching club that some people like to get down on their knees, I guess, and watch ants. Uh, Rock, Paper, Scissors Club, uh, that's another community. Um, There's the World Association of Detectives, an actual association. That's interesting. Obviously, you have to be a detective. There's the National Association of Pet Sitters. Then there's the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention, which has a bunch of people with fat pets that they are concerned about and trying to do something about that. Uh, Then there's the Association of Gravestone Studies, Interesting. I can see that being intriguing, but that's why they gather. Then there's the Giga Society. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, there's only six members in this society because apparently you have to have an IQ of 195 or over, which apparently is really high, I guess. I didn't know that. I'm not that smart. Um, and there's other factors involved, but like you have like less than a one in a billion chance of joining this Giga Society because like there's only six members Two in the United States, four in Europe. It's like, wow, that's interesting. Then there's the ejection tie club. 5,607 members. You have to have been fired out of a military plane ejection seat to join this club. And apparently they never meet. They don't have banquets. All they do is they send a tie because now you're part of the club that you've been ejected out of a seat. It's kind of weird. Now you might know the more common ones like I mean maybe you have a book club because you like reading books or maybe you like to do baking so you gather around that or maybe you do fly fishing and so you tie flies and you go fishing or you play football or whatever the case may be I mean the point is is that there's something common I mean some of you know that I like to ride a motorbike and so uh, I don't have a membership in a motorcycle club but there's this bond that you feel when you pass another motorcycle on the highway anybody who has a motorcycle knows what I'm talking about Right? You're riding on the highway, you see another motorbike, what, what happens? It's the low wave. It's just, you know, the hand out here, just a low wave down here. And you're just sort of like, yeah, that's a brother <laughs> or a sister. And you just feel this bond, you know? You just have this... And, and so for me, it's really hard when I drive in my truck and then I pass a motorbike and I just sort of, I want to wave, but I'm not part of the club in that moment. And so, whatever it is, my point is, something causes you to be a community, What's the commonality? My contention would be that in the church, there are at least two things. I would identify two primary things that are common reason for our unity. And those are common covenant and common mission. And so when you think of common covenant for a minute, think about what Jesus said when he gathered his disciples around and he he showed them this bread and he said, Take this bread and eat. This is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup after supper, and he drank it, and he said, This is my blood, and this represents the new covenant. And when you drink it, remember me. So Jesus sets in motion this common covenant that the Christian church has followed of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done on the cross, his body broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. And so as a church, sometimes we use the phrase, we talk about covenant community, and people wonder, what does that mean? This is what it means. It means that we are a covenant community. The reason that we gather, the common unity piece that we gather that is foundational to why we gather is the covenant of Jesus Christ. And so it's really important that we understand that commonality as a church. The Apostle Paul, he, he says it a little bit differently. He he says in Ephesians 4, verse 3 to 6, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, it's a pretty comprehensive statement that he's saying, This is our oneness. This is our unity. This is why we gather. This is why we are the church. So, we need to understand that commonality. Second one, common covenant. And second one, common mission. Is that we gather to be the church, as I said earlier, that was set in motion right there from Abraham and the people of Israel. And now we are joining in this common mission that Jesus articulates in Matthew 28 and what we know as the great commission, the great co mission that we are given. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we need to recognize the commonalities that matter when we gather as the church. These are the core essentials, this common covenant and common mission. Because the problem is, is that sometimes we gather for other reasons. Sometimes we actually make community itself the focal point or the community itself the target. And we, we think that that's what we need. It's just really good community that we all get along. And so we make that the focal point and the reason why we meet. But the problem is, is that whenever we do that, all we typically see are the faults, the weaknesses, the unmet expectations, the way our community failed us. You see, community is not a good end target. Community is a byproduct of a church that understands its common covenant and common mission. And so when you, when you focus on the covenant and the mission that we are called to, community happens. This mission is this great, common, demanding task that Jesus has given us. He's set in motion and he's given us his Holy Spirit to empower us. And so when we focus on that mission together, community is formed. So it's really important that we understand that. So, I want to look at the last four elements. That's the first one. But the last four focus more back on the question that I began with about who are you and community and what's it like to be on the other side of me? That question. And so, the second critical element that I would put forward is two words vulnerability and generosity. You could separate them out, they're distinct, but I think they kind of go together. This whole idea that we need to open ourselves up to other people. And sometimes we find that hard and we kind of keep things really close to ourselves and close to our chest and we don't like to be vulnerable with people. But community happens as we take a risk and actually are vulnerable with people. And some people have said that tra- life transformation, <clears throat> excuse me, it happens in circles, not in rows. Meaning that when you sit in rows like what you're sitting right now, it, it serves a purpose and that's, that's helpful and it plays a significant part of discipleship in one way, but transformation really starts to happen when we actually turn towards each other and we actually share our lives with each other. Or like in a small group where you gather in a circle and you actually experience life together and you share your life together with each other and there's ongoing conversation with everybody involved, which is why small groups is such a critical part of our church. And so we need to have this vulnerability and this generosity. And we need to be generous with our lives. It's part of what vulnerability is. It's actually being generous with our lives. And it's, it's um, being generous with our finances, our, our resources, our gifts, our experiences, all that we are, all that we have. And it's being vulnerable and generous together. And it means self-sacrifice. You know, Jesus was the greatest example of this. And as we are called in discipleship to follow Jesus, we read this example of this vulnerability and generosity summarized in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 8, where the Apostle Paul is describing who Jesus is and what he's done. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind, and in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What a remarkable example that we are to follow of vulnerability and generosity. I mean, Jesus is the one who took the towel and the basin and he washed his disciples' feet. Jesus is the one who willingly went to the cross to die on our behalf and gave his life. And so for us, we're called to vulnerability and generosity with our lives in lots of different ways. The third critical element I'd put forward, just simply called trust development. We all know, I think, that it takes a long time often to build trust. Trust doesn't come quickly or easily, at least for most people. Some people give trust a lot quicker. But it also takes very little time to destroy. And there's lots of different ways you can develop trust, but one way that I heard that somebody put it, and I can't remember where this source came from, but it was really helpful for me, and they just said, You know, building trust is simply making agreements and keeping them. And they talked about three levels of agreements, or three levels that you can make agreements with people and keep them. And the first one, the first level of agreements is assumptions. Now, the unfair thing about assumptions is that they are cultural and personal, and they're not verbalized. So as you and I enter into a relationship in a small group, in a family, with another person, whatever the case may be, you have assumptions about what they are going to do and about what this is going to be about. Those are actually internal agreements that you're making in this community, but you're not telling anybody. So then when they don't meet those expectations or fulfill those assumptions, you're disappointed. That's the challenge with this first level of agreements. But they're there. We all have them. We make assumptions. We have expectations, but we don't always verbalize them. And then when people don't live up to them, we're disappointed, and it kind of erodes the trust. Second one is actually verbal agreements, where we just make those more informal verbal agreements to one another. We might say, hey, I'll meet you at 10 o'clock tomorrow, or I'll follow up with this, or I'll do whatever the case may be, fill in the blank. And so we make verbal agreements with people, and whether we keep those or not, either develops trust or erodes trust. And then the third level of agreement is written agreements, right? Right? We make contracts, we write covenants together, we write MOUs between organizations, whatever the case may be, but we have written agreements, and then the question is, do we keep those agreements? So these are all different ways that we can very quickly build or erode trust in relationships, in community. So the question for us is, how are we in community? What is it like to be on the other side of you when it comes to this kind of trust development? And then the fourth area that I think is critical is the area of self-awareness. And this goes back to that question of what it's like on the other side of me that I started with right at the beginning. But do we actually have self-awareness? Do we hold up the mirror? Do we have the ability and do we regularly hold up the mirror and ask questions like this, these dangerous questions like we're talking about today for the sake of healthy discipleship and for a community of common covenant and common mission? Going back to Romans 12 again, the text that we read earlier, if you read it in the New Living Translation, the Apostle, it's translated this way, what the Apostle Paul says. It says, don't think that you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. So again, Paul is saying, be honest. Don't think too highly. Don't think too lowly of yourself, but be honest. And part of how we do that is we actually invite other people in, that vulnerability piece, to speak into our lives. You know, self-awareness, I'm becoming increasingly convinced, is one of the more critical traits of leadership, of people who are willing to ask those questions and then willing to also listen and respond in ways that are helpful. But not only in leadership, but in any kind of community. If you are in any kind of family, relationship group, small group, whatever the case may be, church community at large, I mean, it just requires that we are self-aware in order to create healthy discipleship communities. And so Paul goes on in Romans 12 to explain the gifts. And he, he says you need to know your gifts. And he says whether it's prophesying, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, showing mercy. Whatever it is, press into it. Use your gift. Bring your gifts to the community. And he says every gift matters. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So Paul is encouraging us to know our spiritual gifts. I would say encouraging us to know our personalities, to know our character, to take time to reflect on that, to have other people speak into it. But I have become even more convinced in these last couple of years that not only do we need to know the gifts that we have, but we also, just as importantly, need to know the gifts that we don't have. Because when we understand and are okay with the gifts that we don't have, it actually affirms and builds community. Because then we recognize that we need other people because I can't do what you can do. And you can't do what I can do. And so together we can actually be something far greater and far more impactful than we ever could alone. And so it's powerful and it takes humility for us to know and to be able to express, these are not my gifts. I've said, Spencer mentioned it, Prayer is not my gift. I don't do that naturally or easily, but I need to grow in it. We all have things that we're strong at and things that we're weak at. but We need to understand and know that more deeply and intimately in order to be a healthy community. And then lastly is self-leadership. I mean, it's, it's one thing to be self-aware, which is really important, to be aware and hold up the mirror and to be able to articulate or write down or somehow come to grips with what it is that we need to see But then the question is, what are you going to do about it? So, okay, you see this, but now what? And so, self leadership is this important piece where you actually lead yourself. And a lot of people have argued that the leadership of one, the leadership of self, is actually the hardest kind of leadership you can do. I think that's true. We're the hardest people to lead. And so, we're called to the self leadership. But it doesn't come easy. Psalm 101, and I'd encourage you to turn there, is, I think, a great text on self-leadership. It's a text that is written by King David. And it's an example of David being really intentional to take steps of self-leadership to be transformed and changed into the image of God. Now, this is written, apparently, shortly after his affair with Bathsheba. And so if you know the story of David, you know that at some point in his military and leadership career, he had a moral failure where he acted on things that he saw through his eyes and changed in his heart, and he had an affair with this woman, and then he had her husband killed. So here is David, who is an adulterer and a murderer, and yet he went from being a poor, humble shepherd boy to the king of Israel. He went from being somebody who had kind of obscurity to being this great warrior that so many people knew about. He became the king of Israel who all the other kings were held up against in comparison. And he was seen as somebody who had the heart of God because he had this repentant spirit and this broken heart. And he could self-reflect and he was self-aware. And here in Psalm 101, we have a text where he, I think, starts to walk in this self-leadership of, God, I'm going to change. This is what I'm going to do differently. Just listen to these words. He says, I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate that what faithless people do, I will have no part of it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. I'd encourage you, I've done it my body, I'd encourage you to underline every time he says, I will, I will, I will, I will not. I mean, it's just this conviction of self-leadership where, where David is just saying, this is what I will do. This is what I commit to. This is what I covenant with you, God. And it's just this incredible intentionality of self-leadership where he just resolves himself before the Lord that these are the things he will do. And these are the things he will not do because he knows his fallen heart. He knows the weakness of the flesh. And he says, I will lead a blameless life. And I love that line in there, a blameless life. He says, I will conduct the affair of my house with a blameless heart. What does it mean to live blamelessly? I think it means to live in truth and in freedom because you have nothing to hide. You are who you are. People see. What they see is what they get. You live with the intentionality of integrity and purity, but you have failures, but you repent of those. You ask for forgiveness. You walk in that. But he he is convicted to live a blameless life. He says that he wants to live with purity. I can only imagine the things that are going around in the back of his mind with his whole experience with Bathsheba and the moral failure that he had in his life and his marriage and his leadership. And now he's saying, you know what? I'm not going to live that way. He says, I won't look uh, or with approval on anything that is vile. The things that we see with our eyes and that we allow our eyes to dwell on lead us astray and they can change our hearts. And so he's saying, I, I'm not going to look on that, any of that kind of stuff. And he talks about leading with integrity, about not having anything to do with Evil. I mean, he just goes on and on about not having pride. To me, this is an incredible text of self-leadership. Where David is just proclaiming before the Lord things that I think for so many of us, we too would join in and say, yes, yes, yes. So my encouragement to us is to take seriously our call to create community. To be people who understand what is really at the core and what is really essential in the church of a common covenant and a common mission. And that that becomes our focal point, not creating some kind of place where everybody gets along right. But that as we understand those things, that those, the unity that is found in the church starts to become this beautiful byproduct because of our focus. And my encouragement for us is that we would have the courage to ask the dangerous question. Like to literally ask somebody this question. So what is it like to be on the other side of me? And then listen. And then respond. And then change. That's transformation. And I pray that God would give us the courage and the ability and the grace to walk in that. I want to invite you to stand, if you would, and invite the worship team up. And I want to close in prayer with us together. Before I close in prayer, I just want to mention that a little bit later in the service, again, Spencer's going to come up and he's going to introduce a time where you have an opportunity to pray and there's a group of people who are going to be at the front here again like we did last Sunday and available to pray with you and I think there'll be somebody in the balcony as well too. And and just encourage uh, you to take the opportunity to have somebody pray with you. Now, as we grow as a church that is a praying church, our encouragement is always to be people who are quick to ask for prayer and quick to offer prayer. So you don't have to come to the front. You can do that right where you're sitting before you leave today with other people, but that we would just be people who would be quick to pray with each other. That's part of the vulnerability piece, right? And it creates community when we do that. And so would you do that as well as you think about how God would have you respond today? Let's pray. So Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these scripture texts that are just so rich and full of examples for us. Most ultimately, Lord Jesus, the example of you, of being a servant who walked um, to the cross willingly for us and died for our sins. And God, you have modeled vulnerability and generosity and sacrifice in ways that we have a hard time imagining or understanding. But Lord, help us to follow you in that. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who are intentional about how we build and create community by being willing to look at ourselves and who we are in community. And God, sometimes we always want to look and change other people and change the church and change everything else. But God, would you just change us? Would you transform us? Would you help us to bring so much more grace and love into our community? And God, would you just continue to show us our gifts that we have and and be okay and encourage and fan into flames in others the gifts that we don't have? So we pray that you would lead us into this and that you would create in us a remarkable community that understands your covenant, is engaged with your mission. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.